Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. What a glorious day out there and also in here. So it's good to uh, just be together again on uh, this day of uh, worship together. And um, today we're going to be talking about rest. Um, some years ago, I spent a couple of years studying jazz at Capilano College. And one of the things that we were taught is the importance of listening to the so-called masters. So jazz, as you would know, is an oral tradition. So there's no YouTube, there's no Apple Music, there's no Spotify. So if you wanted to learn from the best, you had to show up at their shows and try to remember what you heard and then get out to the woodshed and practice your chops, as they say, in the business. And so I remember stories about different eras in jazz history, like in the 40s when an 18-year-old Miles Davis went night after night to hear Charlie Parker play and then invited himself over, I presume, to his apartment after the gig. And then he'd ask, okay, so what was that lick that you played on that blues tune? How, what was the intro to that ballad again? And often staying up till the wee hours, first trying to get Charlie Parker's hipness under his own fingers, and then armed with that know-how, developing his unique voice to the point where he joined Parker's band as a sideman. We learned all about how the great jazz musicians did a ton of listening to the ones who came before them, and that if we had any hope of becoming any good ourselves, that's what we would have to do as well. It would require a lot more listening than any of us thought was necessary. Listening not only for enjoyment, but listening for the purpose of imitation. Imitation that would lead to the discovery of one's own voice, to the ability to play alongside the great ones and eventually mentor others in the same path. So, in the first year of jazz studies, we sat under the tutelage of Miles Davis. We were given the assignment in year one of transcribing the solo that he played in a tune called Freddie Freeloader. I'm sure I still have my copy in a binder somewhere, but I found someone else's transcription on YouTube. So, I thought I'd share that with you all. Here's what the transcription sort of looks like when it's written out. another minute and a half and it's all glorious but you know let's give us all a break here um, it looks pretty easy once it's complete right you can see all the notes and if you do read music you can see it's accurate um, but none of us had this video to cheat from and even if we did we knew we'd be shortchanging ourselves if we didn't do the hard work ourselves and let me tell you there was a ton of rewinding the cassette tape none of you know what that is actually I think we had CDs by then so the CD scrubber bar, run, running that back. So what was that pickup note he played at the beginning of that bar? Was it a two-beat rest or was it one and a half? And did that phrase end up on an A or an A flat? So you back it up. You listen again and again and again, training the ear, training the fingers, training the voice, hearing, then playing, watching, then doing, imitating, and then improvising. So learning to excel or at least get somewhat good at an oral tradition like jazz is a long journey. And Miles knew it because he lived it. 
And at one point he said this, sometimes you have to play a long time to be able to play like yourself. What if being able to play and live like yourself starts with imitation? We're not all musicians, but think of something you're good at if you're not a musician. Think of some other skill or practice, something that you eventually became good at because it took some practice. For these things, we need mentors and guides, someone to show us how it's done. So what if it's first about watching how someone else does it and then doing likewise, and then repeating that process throughout one's life? What if becoming fully comfortable in your own skin starts with observing someone who is fully comfortable in theirs? We're in this teaching series now, as many of you know, that's all about apprenticing ourselves to a master. It's called practicing the way of Jesus. And we do this by orienting ourselves around three basic goals, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what he did. So we've learned, uh, looked at a number of practices already. We've looked at simplicity, looked at the practice of the table, of solitude. There have been some fantastic sermons in the series so far, and today I want to talk about rest. Would you join me uh, in offering a prayer as we uh, get into this together? God, we thank you uh, that you are the author of rest, and that is in fact your idea uh, that we engage in rest um, as your people and find a balance between work and rest and all the other things that you invite us into. So we pray that you would open our minds and hearts as we open up your scriptures, as we learn from Jesus, and seek to imitate our master together. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So I heard about a recent study in the UK that confirmed what every parent knows or will learn from experience and what most people I think know by instinct, and that is that kids learn to rest in the same way that they learn to walk and run and talk. Rest takes practice. We need ritual and routine in order to learn to fall asleep. And over time, infants learn through habit that they can finally stop fighting sleepiness. Please, Lord, let this be true. <laughs> to get there, they need a consistent bedtime rhythm. Might consist of low light, bath time, book time, soft singing, saying prayers, some rocking. All of these activities allow their brains to chart out a biochemical path toward rest. You take bedtime routine away and you will likely have hyperactivity and behavioral problems on your hands. Now, we aren't much different as adults, are we? I'm not. And here's something that seems pretty clear. If rest is learned by habit and repetition, restlessness is too, right? And these patterns of rest or restlessness will form us over time. We live in a restless world. In 2011, the World Association of Sleep Medicine called lack of sleep a global epidemic. Their report from that year said sleep problems, including insomnia, obstructive sleep apnea, restless legs syndrome, and sleep deprivation in general affect up to 45% of the world's population. Anyone know where we rank as a nation? It's a good guess, Drew. I'm give you a hint. It's not good news. A report from last year said Canada is the third most sleep-deprived country on the planet. Nearly a third of us feel like we don't get enough sleep. The UK and Ireland are the only two countries that finished ahead of Canada with 37 and 34% of survey respondents saying they don't get enough sleep. So we tied with the US for third with 31%. Now, some of us might be thinking, I thought we were talking about rest. Rest isn't limited to sleep. 
But let me just say, we, we have to talk about and think of sleep as a spiritual practice because sleep is spiritual. It affects everything else we do. And the reasons we avoid rest are very similar to the reasons we don't get enough sleep. Our culture is, as someone put it, workaholic, image barraged, over-caffeinated, entertainment addicted, and supercharged. Studies these days sorry, are nearly unanimous that too much screen time is the main reason we're short on sleep and rest. But it seems to me it runs deeper than that. If we truly understood the seriousness of the problem, if we were ready to admit we're part of it, and if we thought that our screens and smartphones were the core issue, core issue, if it were that easy to just turn them off in the evening, wouldn't we do it? I wonder if one root cause of our dysfunctional relationship with rest is that we wear busyness as a badge of pride. We think of exhaustion as a trophy. We see our ability to withstand stress as the mark of true character. As one writer said, the busier we are, the more important we seem to ourselves and we imagine to others. Many of us avoid rest because we're too busy trying to be God. There was this tweet by a guy called Ephraim Smith a few years ago that stopped me in my tracks. He said, now that I'm on vacation and resting, I realize how tired I've been. Rest should be a rhythm, not a reward. So think about whether you've had this experience before. You come back from a holiday, could be two weeks, could be just a weekend, and someone asks you how it was. And so assuming it went well, you might answer something like, oh, it's really good, had good rest, weather was fantastic, we went on a couple hikes, read some good books, whatever you ended up doing that made it good. And their response, wow, sounds like such a great vacation. So well deserved. We may well have worked really hard prior to taking a break, but what are we saying through this when we say to someone that was really well deserved, that people who don't work as hard don't deserve to rest? What if rest isn't something to be earned? What if the creator of the universe intended rest as rhythm, not reward? Or imagine you're hiring someone for a new position and their resume basically comes off sounding like Dwight Schrute from The Office. Here's my card, it's got my cell number, my pager number, my home number, and my other, home, my other pager number. I never take vacations, I never get sick, and I don't celebrate any major holidays. <laughs> so you hear that, what's your gut reaction? Are you impressed by someone who never takes a day off and is perpetually available to others? Or does it raise some red flags? Does this sound like true dedication to you or a formula for an early death? We are broadly speaking, insanely, dangerously out of rhythm. We have lost the essential rhythm between work and rest. Here's the result of all this. Our culture invariably supposes that action and accomplishment are better than rest, that doing something, anything, is better than doing nothing. Because of our desire to succeed, to meet these ever-growing expectations, we do not rest. Because we do not rest, we lose our way. We miss the compass points that would show us where to go. We bypass the nourishment that would give us succor. We miss the quiet that would give us wisdom. We miss the joy and love born of effortless delight. Poisoned by this hypnotic belief that good things come only through unceasing determination and tireless effort, we can never truly rest. And for want of rest, our lives are in danger. It's from Wayne Muller's uh, book on Sabbath, which I recommend anyone who wants or needs to do some more thinking about this. 
There's another one by Wayne Muller, because, just because it's so good. He says, a successful life has become a violent enterprise. We make war on our own bodies, pushing them beyond their limits. War on our children, because we cannot find enough time to be with them when they are hurt and afraid and need our company. War on our spirit, because we are too preoccupied to listen to the quiet voices that seek to nourish and refresh us. War on our communities, because we are fearfully protecting what we have, and we do not feel safe enough to be kind and generous. War on the earth, because we cannot take the time to place our feet on the ground and allow it to feed us, to taste its blessings, and to give thanks. Good news, it doesn't have to be this way. The one who made us, who made it all, as it turns out, is really into rest. It doesn't take long before you open the pages of scripture and it gets mentioned specifically. But even before the word rest appears in the Bible, the idea of rest is clearly implied in Genesis 1 with the repetition of this phrase. And there was evening and there was morning. So in Jewish culture, days begin in the evening when the sun sets. So in other words, the day begins with rest. As someone put it, we start by settling down and going to sleep. We begin by resting, drooling on our pillow, dropping off into helplessness. We start by doing nothing. Eugene Peterson put it like this, the Hebrew evening-morning sequence conditions us to the rhythms of grace. We go to sleep, and God begins his work. Then in Genesis 2, we read this. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God rested. The only one who is truly limitless, who has endless resources, who, according to the psalmist, neither slumbers nor sleeps, who has no need to replenish and re-energize, took a rest. God rested. And Karl Barth suggested that in doing so, God is declaring as fully as possible just how very good creation is. In resting, God takes great delight in what he has made. God has no regrets. There's no need to go on to create a still better world or a creature more wonderful than the woman or the man. And in the day of rest, God's free love toward humanity takes form as time shared with him. Later in Exodus 16, God instructs the people of Israel to share in the blessing of this day. And he brings them out of slavery into the wilderness and he sends them manna, commanding them to gather enough each morning for that day's food alone. Remember the story? What happens? They don't trust God. They gather more than they need and it goes bad. But then on the sixth day, they are told to gather enough for the last two days of the week. And this time, miraculously, the leftovers don't rot. But there's still a few who refuse to trust God. And when they head out on the seventh morning, they don't find anything. Check, check. Still all right? Is it a cable thing? Yeah. All right. Just make sure we're live here. Let's get... And so what's God doing? He's teaching them through their own hunger and through nature's provisions something about Sabbath rhythm even before Moses receives the commandments on Mount Sinai. 
These episodes, combined with the Hebrew sequence of evening and morning, where we begin the day with rest, these are where the idea of rest as rhythm, not reward, has its roots. It gets better. As we look to the Sabbath commandment itself, is, is found in two different places, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And in both accounts, the Sabbath command is the longest. Uh, unlike the other nine, the Sabbath commandment takes different forms in each. Both require the same behavior, work six days, rest one day, but each gives a different reason for doing so. This is kind of mind-blowing. So stick with me. Exodus 20 from 8 to 11 reads this way. In your chair Bibles, the page is indicated in case you want to look along. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but, on, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here, the command to remember the Sabbath is grounded in the story of creation. The human pattern of six days of work and one of rest follows God's pattern as creator. So God's people are to rest one day because God did. In both work and rest, human beings are in the image of God. And yet at the same time, we are not God, but God's creatures. So we're required to honor this commandment by obeying it. So later in Deuteronomy 5, uh, here the commandments to observe the Sabbath day is tied to the experience of a people recently released from bondage. Have a listen to these verses. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Slaves aren't permitted to take a day off. Free people can. So when they stop work every seventh day, the people will remember that the Lord brought them out of slavery. They will see to it that no one within their own dominion, not even animals, will work without rest. Dorothy Bass put it this way, that for the early Jews, Sabbath rest was a recurring testimony against the drudgery of slavery. So together, these two accounts of the Sabbath commandments sum up the central stories of the Hebrew scriptures, creation and exodus, humanity made in God's image and a people liberated from captivity. One, we could say, emphasizes holiness. It remembers and celebrates the sacredness of all life. And the other emphasizes social justice. It's a liberating God. And that he longs for all people to be free from enslavement of every variety. So this single Sabbath commandment, when you understand why it was given, paints a brilliant portrait of who God is and what human beings are most fully meant to be. So what if Sabbath could serve as a weekly reminder that your smartphone does not own you? What if Sabbath could remind us not to ignore the underworked among us? One of the harshest aspects of the North American economy, which asks way too much of way too many people, is that it casts many others aside, leaving them without enough sufficient work. 
A Sabbath-keeping community would be one in which this injustice does not occur. So we could just stand back and say the Sabbath, like all other commandments, is sheer gift. Isaiah 58 says, If you call the Sabbath a delight, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. Ruth Haley Barton says, The point of the Sabbath is to honor our need for a sane rhythm of work and rest. It is to honor the body's need for rest, the spirit's need for replenishment, and the soul's need to delight itself in God for God's own sake. It begins with the willingness to acknowledge the limits of our humanness and take steps to live more graciously within the order of things. So we want to move on now to look at how Jesus practiced and taught about rest. But let me just say something quickly about what rest is not. Rest is not the same thing as laziness, right? Laziness means being idle or lethargic, choosing to be inactive when one could be active, which is, of course, different from being unable to do something, right? So someone suffering from illness who's bedridden or someone with a disability who can't walk, it's not lazy. Sickness, fatigue, incapacity are not the stuff of laziness. Now, we, of course, are all lazy at times, but a lazy person is someone who consistently and frequently chooses not to do things that she or he is able to do. Another word for this is sloth. Now, some of you know a thing or two about the Enneagram. If you don't, the Enneagram is an ancient personality typing system with nine types. It's a robust system. It's a remarkable tool, not only for self-discovery, but for spiritual transformation. And one thing that makes it hold so much potential for change is that each personality has a deadly sin. The idea being that once you become aware of what yours is, you can become better able to notice your triggers and tendencies and make better choices. So one Enneagram expert wrote that each type's deadly sin is like an addictive, involuntarily repeated behavior that we can only be free of when we recognize how often we give it the keys to drive our personality. So fun fact, as a nine on the Enneagram, my deadly sin is sloth. So which we usually think of, as we just discussed, as physical in nature, someone who's able to do stuff but just doesn't. And in Enneagram terms, sloth is more spiritual in nature. So congratulations, you who call artisan home. Your pastor of spiritual formation is particularly prone to spiritual laziness. You feel like you're in good hands? To nuance it a bit more, for nines like me, sloth is mostly about our desire to not become overly affected by life. We just literally don't want life to get us. I'm going to read a quote here that reveals even more about the nine's dark side, but I'm doing so for all our benefit. Whether you know your type or not, and if you do, if you were part of the table group last spring, you know that no deadly person's deadly sin, or person's deadly sin, (laughs) deadly persons, um, is any worse than another's, right? So judgment aside, I invite you to listen, pay attention to the degree to which this is true for you. You ready? Here we go. To cope with having countless things to do and not knowing where to start, to avoid the backlog of unanswered questions and postponed decisions crying out for their attention to keep their anger out of view, and to buoy a low self-esteem, nines have unhealthy coping strategies. They will often turn to food, sex, drinking, exercise, shopping, the reassuring comforts of habits and routines, performing mindless busy work, or vegging out on the couch and watching TV to numb out and ignore their feelings, wants, and desires. What nines fail to realize is that numbing out is a bogus form of relaxation, 
a cheap imitation of the genuine peace for which they long. We all have unhealthy coping strategies. We all have inclinations toward numbing out, to anesthetizing, self-medicating, to avoid dealing with the difficulties and pain of life. We all engage in bogus forms of relaxation that look more like crashing. And none of this is restful. None of it is real rest. So what did Jesus teach about rest? How did he embody it? And did he actually practice Sabbath or did he just break the rules? There's no question that Jesus had high capacity for pouring into people. He seems totally at ease in any group situation. He spoke to crowds of thousands. He taught his inner circle of disciples. He initiated tough one-on-one conversations and he challenged the political powers of his day. So a quick surface-level read of the Gospels might lead us to conclude that there was rarely a moment when Jesus wasn't engaged with people, that he was a raging extrovert who never slept. But a closer look reveals something quite different. In the four Gospels, the word withdrew appears 11 times, and Jesus is the subject in every occurrence. A few examples. Before he fed the 5,000, he was alone, he was recharging, and it says there, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And it follows that, hearing this, the crowds followed him. Mark 3, he withdrew with his disciples to the lake. Crowds followed again. Now, Luke 5, 15 and 16, read this way. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places, and prayed. There's another great moment in the Gospels where Jesus kind of conks out in the back of a boat in the middle of a storm. His sleep was, of course, theological. He was revealing something of what it means to trust the Father completely, but it's also a story about a tired human being. So what about the Sabbath? Did Jesus keep it? Well, the Gospels show us that Jesus observed the Jewish Sabbath, although... He ignored some of the laws that religious leaders piled on top of what God originally commanded. Laws, for example, that restricted healing or eating in specific situations of need. So in other words, Jesus dismissed the rules and regulations that missed the point. Matthew 12, after healing a man with a shriveled hand and being questioned about it by the Pharisees, Jesus said, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In Mark 2, Jesus is walking through the grain fields and some of his disciples begin picking some heads of grain. And again, the Pharisees are right there. They take issue. And Jesus declares, the Sabbath was made for you, not you for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And one of the best known texts where Jesus talks about rest and refreshment is found in Matthew 11. Are you tired? Worn out? burned out on religion, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Notice that embedded in Jesus' words are both an invitation He says, come to me, and a promise. I'll show you how to take a real rest. One of the things I love about this text is that it reveals a God who gets us. He gets what it's like to be human. 
He gets weariness. He, he knows what it is to struggle. He knows what it's like to carry too much, to feel burdened, to feel weighed down, to feel overwhelmed. And he can relate to people who are just tired, people who are worn out and burned out. Jesus understands. If that weren't the case, he wouldn't have addressed us this way. He wouldn't even bother to come alongside tired people and extend such an invitation. I don't know how many of us like thinking of ourselves as needy. In our culture, that word carries a bit of a derogatory connotation. Oh, him? Yeah, he's a bit needy. But there's the thing. Here's the thing. In scripture, the truly needy are the ones that Jesus keeps seeking out and making himself available to. I like how Dale Bruner put it. He said, only a certain kind of person is invited by Jesus. Those who are having a hard time of it. Those for whom life is hard work and who feel overwhelmed. Jesus' invitation goes out to all those for whom life has become a grind, for whom existence is laborious, to those in a word from whom the juice has gone out of life and all that's left is the rind. Jesus' heart goes out to them. If that's you this morning... I invite you to hear the invitation of the master. Come to me. Get away with me. Recover your life. What does all this reveal? I think a few things. One, we could say, well, Jesus just knew himself well. That's good. Jesus knew his own need for rest, and he took it, which shows us that Jesus understood rest as rhythm, not reward. Wouldn't say otherwise that he often withdrew. It's a pattern in his life. For Jesus, also, we learn that rest often meant prayer. He often withdrew and prayed. I think also it no- Jesus knows that we need rest, and he invites us to find it in and with him. Jesus' life and his teaching reveal his awareness that real rest is found in a relationship. So you know how sometimes relationships can drain the life out of you, and then other times it can be life-giving, restorative, bucket-filling. The friendship Jesus invites you to is always the bucket-filling kind. Sharon Salzberg, uh, she's a columnist for On Being, and she said, I don't believe we can survive for long in a state of constant agitation. Our bodies need rest to replenish stores of energy. This is something best done from a place of love. Jesus invites us, ultimately, to be at rest in his love. So we could summarize uh, this way. Rest is a gift from God. Rest is not laziness or sloth. It's not crashing. It's not numbing out. Rest is rhythm, not reward. The source of true and deep, real rest is a person. And rest takes practice. I believe that practice begins with imitation. So what could it look like to follow in the way of Jesus in practicing rest? Another quote from Ruth Haley Barton. The truth is, she says, Sabbath keeping is a discipline that will mess with you. Because once you move beyond about it and actually begin to practice it, the good news, or sorry, the goodness of it will capture you, body, soul, and spirit. You will long to wake up to a day that stretches out in front of you with nothing in it but rest and delight. You will long for a simple way to turn your heart toward God in worship without much effort. You will long for a space in time when the pace is slow and family and friends linger with one another, savoring one another's presence because no one has anywhere else to go. 
So as we consider what it might look like to practice rest, let me first mention that there are a ton of great books and resources out there. I've already mentioned Wayne Muller's book on Sabbath. Uh, This quote is from Ruth Haley Barton's book uh, called Sacred Rhythms. Mark Buchanan wrote a book a few years back called The Rest of God, and he speaks of Sabbath both as in a day and an attitude. It's a really helpful way to think about it. Marva Dawn's book called Keeping the Sabbath Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. She uh, frames Sabbath as a fourfold pattern of ceasing, resting, embracing, and feasting. And I want to wrap up this morning by offering just a few tangible practices by Eugene Peterson around the rhythms of praying and playing. So when you consider prayer, he encourages us to find a place for worship and prayer. Find a sanctuary. Form a sacred place in your home to a a quiet walk through the park. Locate some holy ground and take off your shoes. Maybe literally. In other words, make preparations to meet God. Take off your watch. Enter in with praise and thanksgiving. Sing, but resist the temptation to write songs. Chant the Psalms. Don't worry about how to do it. Make it up. Take a prayer like our Lord's Prayer and pray it slowly and deliberately as a guide. Spend time reflecting on your calling and the way it's unfolding. Get in touch with the created world around you and remember the works of God in your life. Thank God for your gifts and offer them up again. Playing. Put the dreaded to-do list aside unless it includes an afternoon nap. Go have some fun. Read some good fiction. Watch a good movie. Not seven good movies. (laughs) Or nine episodes of Stranger Things. Take a long drive in the country, go on a hike, visit a park and swing and slide. Learn to play games like cards or chess that stimulate thought and give attention deficit addictions like video games a rest. Make a call, write a letter to an old friend. Be inventive, just resist the temptation to work. One last thought, in your experimenting with rest, with Sabbath keeping, don't make it a heavy thing. Explore it with delight. Keep company with Jesus as you take steps in this direction. Imagine you're learning together how to make the day special for you. Then be as intentional about protecting it as you're able, but don't become rigid or legalistic about it. Remember the words of Christ. The Sabbath was made for human beings, not human beings for the Sabbath. One last short quote by Tish Harrison Warren. This one's in your handout as well. Just love this imagination. What if, she says, what if Christians were known as a countercultural community of the well-rested, people who embrace our limits with zest and even joy? That's worth reflecting on. Let's close in prayer, and then I want to invite you to the table. In Psalm 1 and 27... First couple of verses, the psalmist writes this. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early, stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. God, we join uh, in confession of our own restlessness 
of our own avoidance of embracing our limits as who we are. We thank you for the gift of rest, for the gift of the Sabbath commandment. And in it, we see life. We see possibility for flourishing. We see the recipe for a sustainable existence with you and for you. So we ask God humbly, simply for fresh imagination as we consider this practice, even within this 40-day experiment that we're in the midst of right now, would you show, reveal us to us the ways in which we most need to rest for the sake of our own lives, for the sake of uh, those around us. Invite us, lead us into deeper places of rest and ultimately of knowing you, being embraced by your love. In the name of Christ we pray.